from GreenBiz Group. Welcome to this week's edition of 350. I'm Joel McCower here in Boston, Massachusetts this week, and Lauren Hepler is at 350 Franco Gawa Plaza at GreenBiz headquarters in downtown Oakland, California. On today's edition, are fuel cells worth the investment? Etsy gets crafty with solar. The investment community steps up to climate change and the future of transportation from Hyperloop to high-speed rail. We're on a fast track this week at 350. It's May 6, 2016. Welcome to this week's edition of Green Biz 350. I said before, I'm in Boston, Mass. Uh, and uh, holding down the fort at 350 Franco Gala Plaza is senior editor Lauren Hepler. Hey, Lauren. Hey there. How's it going? How are the travels? Uh, travels have been great. I've been here for about five days. I, I hope the weather is nicer there than here. It's been gray and dreary and raining quite a bit uh everybody who lives here is horrified that they had promised us all a beautiful you know new england spring but um uh that's no matter we've had some 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 great meetings Mm -hmm. And I know we'll be getting into it in a little bit, but so you've been talking lots of sustainable finance. Yeah, well, I came here for the two things. One uh, was the series conference. It's uh, on my annual circuit, uh, CERES, the, uh, formerly the Coalition for Environmentally Responsible Economies. It's an organization that, that focuses a lot at the intersection of corporate sustainability and institutional investing. Um, and then in the run-up to that, on Monday, Tuesday this week, we had... Um, a meeting, uh, one of the three spring meetings of our Green Biz Executive Network. That's the uh, peer-to-peer membership group of sustainability executives from big companies. We, it was hosted uh, just outside of Boston in Waltham at Verizon, and we have about 25 companies. Uh, and we were talking risk. Climate risk, or what exactly were you drilling down into? Well, corporate risk as it relates to sustainability. So what we had was uh, some chief risk officers uh, uh, speaking to this group of chief sustainability officers and uh, got into a great conversation about where the risk departments and the sustainability departments need to be to play together more because so much of that sustainability uh, does is about some kind of risk, financial risk, reputational risk, right to operate risk, uh, supply chain uh, risk, business continuity risk. Uh, but they don't really have that conversation uh, together very much. And the, or to put it more directly, the sustainability people generally aren't invited to the table when the risk companies' risk department talk about it. And that affects, you know, the risk department affects long-term investments and planning and strategy um, and uh, a number of other things. And it, it can, conversation with uh, shareholders. So we're just talking about how those two can play together more. Yeah, that definitely seems like an area we've been hearing more about, especially as you look at even something like what's going on in Houston with the flooding and like you referenced sort of the uh, issues that can crop up there with supply chains or operational continuity. Yeah, but it's not just uh, sort of natural disaster kind of risks or the big hit risk. A lot of this is slower moving kinds of things. And as we always do, uh, we're going to have three 
three meetings this month and during May uh, of the executive network. And then after that, we'll bring in John Davies, uh, our senior analyst who runs the network, and he'll talk about sort of what are the learnings. So we're going to have that same conversation for three different groups of companies, and we'll, we'll summarize what we've heard, what we've learned, and, and where this topic may be going. But enough of all that. Let's get to the Week in Review. So, Lauren, you had an interesting week. You were hanging out at the Tesla factory in Fremont, California. What was going on? I was. I was down in suburban Silicon Valley this week for a event called the World Energy Innovation Forum 2016. Um, and the focus there was sort of looking broadly at the future of energy, not only being at Tesla, sort of the whole transportation landscape. And Elon Musk was there and he had some really provocative things to say that um, we can get into. But we were also graced with the presence of the director of ARPA-E, sort of the government's advanced technology group and they were focused on sort of how to parlay robotics and drones to issues like biofuel and sort of detecting natural gas leaks so lots of interesting stuff there and then the one that i personally did not really see coming but was super fascinated by was akon who is the grammy nominated musician he actually grew up in senegal and has launched this public private effort called akon lighting africa that aims to go bring solar powered energy resources from street lights to micro generators to household electric to individual villages, starting with investments of around $75,000 per location. So a really interesting, specific model of sort of advancing this whole distributed renewables market. And what was he doing there? I mean, what was the message to this audience? And who, who was the audience? Yeah, so it seemed like definitely a broad audience. There were definitely people there who you could tell were hanging on every word that Elon Musk said about the future of transportation. Some of the notable things he pointed out were... Uh, he expects in seven to eight years, half of all new cars to be hitting the market will be fully autonomous. 10 years for sure, he said. Um, and he also really got into sort of some of the stickier issues with uh, EV adoption, sort of how there's been a lot of what he called misconceptions about government subsidies for clean technologies like Tesla. Um he pointed to some media coverage that sort of frames EVs as something that require all of these government subsidies, but then pointed out that, as we know, fossil fuels are still subsidized to the tune of $10 million a minute by one international monetary fund calculation. Uh, so he said there is sort of this quote unquote propaganda war that will continue to see more. So always provocative there. And you could tell there were a lot of people interested in that. Um, but when it got to ACON and some of the stuff that RPE was working on, it was clearly um, sort of more focused on emerging technologies, whether that is things like the agriculture energy nexus that RPE is looking at, sort of how you weigh the costs and benefits of taking something like agricultural products that obviously could be used for food and turning them into biofuel. There's some tough questions there that you have to weigh. Um, and then with Akon and the work he's doing in Africa, there's sort of this whole opportunity to leapfrog 
the grid, as he talked about a lot, which is to go from no electricity at all in some areas to distributed renewables, sort of skipping the whole brown energy grid in between. So it was a wide ranging event, uh, but definitely some fascinating topics. Yeah, well, speaking of distributed generation and fuels, um, Heather Clancy, our senior writer, wrote this uh, really provocative piece this week called are fuel cells worth the investment? Yeah, so she was looking at what she definitely said are still pretty nascent investments at companies including Microsoft and Legrand. Um, and so some of these people are using the Bloom fuel cells, Bloom Energy is a company out in our direction in California um, and maybe using a fuel cell at a North American headquarters site like Legrand is in Connecticut. Um, and that was the company's first investment there. Um, and they said they were motivated by sort of the cost side of all of this, uh, like maybe getting grid independence and being less vulnerable to cost volatility down the road. Um, but that's just one example of sort of the evolving approach to this space from corporations. Yeah, I mean, we heard a lot about uh, fuel cells, a lot of fanfare, I don't know, four, five, six years ago when uh, when Google and eBay and a number of other companies, uh, you know, launched them right very visibly on their property, um, and it's still a, it seems to be an open question. This question that she asked of whether they're worth the investment, and nobody seems. I have to say, the the article didn't really answer the question because I'm not sure it's answerable yet. That this is still the jury is is still out in terms of how much, uh, you know, you can really cost justify it. I think. Uh, you know, when it becomes, uh, or I think where it becomes cost justifiable is when there's some major outage and all of a sudden, you know, eBay's continues to have power where someone nearby uh, in, their, in the same community may not. And so that's, I think, going to be the ultimate test is do, is the resilience of, of the backup power uh, that they provide or, you know, or the even if they're used as primary power, that, that, that they're available as backup if the grid goes down, that will be the ultimate acid test. Right. It also is interesting when you look at sort of different applications, whether the fact that there are companies like Toyota that are still really espousing this concept in the transportation market. And I know there are others sort of in the world of advanced transportation that are still saying that fuel cells could be an important part of bringing down transportation emissions, whether if you have people from multiple sectors kind of looking at this technology, those costs will come down over time. And they would have to come down dramatically, as you alluded yeah, to. Yeah, I mean, uh, both Honda and Toyota have and, and have been, you know, continue to uh, put place bets around uh, fuel cell powered vehicles. And uh, you'll hear some one one or both of those companies and, and a few others occasionally will will proclaim that that still is where the future is going, that natural gas powered fuel cells and maybe someday renewably powered natural renewably generated gas that powers fuel cells uh, is still a, a viable option. And, and, and I can see how it makes sense, particularly with fleets and uh, vehicles that return to a home base uh, on a, every day or on a regular basis or never venture more than five or 10 or 15 miles from a base. That's uh, a place where this could be attractive. And so the question, I guess, about our fuel cells really worth the investment, uh, like I said, still outstanding. Um, and speak, while we're sticking with Heather and energy stories, there's one other one she did about a company that doesn't frequently come up 
in sustainability conversations, the craft marketplace Etsy. Yeah, so that was an interesting sort of two-prong story. Not only does Etsy have a goal to transition its Brooklyn offices to 100% renewable energy by 2020, they're looking at sort of a net metering deal to pull power from a solar array near JFK Airport in New York, Uh, but they're also looking at some creative ways to get... Uh, renewable power sort of more distributed through their supply chain. And in this case, obviously, their supply chain are the sellers that put their crafty products on the online marketplace. Yeah, that's, I mean, how do they, how do they plan to do that? Because those are a lot of mom and pop organizations. Yeah, it's so very nascent for sure that what Heather wrote about is that they're currently testing a program that encourages the community of sellers to adopt solar power. But the idea here is really around offsets mostly at this point, um, sort of offsets generated by the distributed installations that Etsy is investing in. So they're working with a group called Geostellar out of Utah, um, which uses satellite imagery to sort of calculate a building's solar potential. So that's sort of the more forward looking angle in all of this, if they can go beyond sort of offsets to uh, look at getting solar power more directly into the hands of their sellers. Well, I like the vision of it. I like that they're uh, thinking big and that they're looking beyond their their walls and, and into their supply chain, which, as you said, are a lot of small, crafty businesses. Um, and that's a really great way for a company to engage uh, with their communities and, and help uh, their suppliers or customers or, or, or others uh, take the kinds of steps that they themselves are taking in terms of turning to renewable energy and, and maybe enjoy the economies of scale or some other things that might not be available to uh, individual Uh, businesses uh, on their own. So, Joel, you mentioned at the start of the show that you've been at the series conference this week. What was new and different this year? Well, that's a good question, and it's exactly what I asked Mindy Luber, series president, because this is the first series conference since COP21. Um, but before we get to what she had to say, um, you know, this has become uh, much more focused on on the investment community uh, and how investors are responding, and particularly the big institutional investors. So you've got this really interesting mix of people. Series is a, you know, prides itself as being a coalition of, of investors, but it's the it's pension funds, it's uh, labor unions, oh, those, a lot of those are pension funds, it's university endowments, it's city and state uh, endowments, so they're, they're pension funds, it's uh, the faith-based investors, uh, again, big church-based kinds of funds, what I always like to call little sisters of the immaculate investment. Um, <laughs> and uh, and so they're all coming together to talk about, well, how do we think about our investments, but, but equally or perhaps more importantly, how do we leverage our clout as big investors to influence the companies that we invest in 
to uh, to move towards climate friendly practices, or in the case of some of the fossil fuel companies, uh, how do they? How do we think about the stranded assets, which is a topic we've talked about? So uh, I had a great conversation as the conference was winding down with with Mindy, and uh, here's uh, how it went down. Paris was an enormous awakening. The results of Paris say we will get to a fossil fuel-free world by the end of 2050. To do so, we need to see enormous changes, disruptive changes, not bad disruptive changes, but scale and pace are key. And we're talking a lot about that here at Series at the conference, that we will not get there if we do things incrementally, that making the change to get to what 175 world leaders say we need to do to stay within a two-degree world will take massive change. And we've got to start that process of innovation, of massive change within the world's largest companies and investors, uh, and get moving, get moving sooner rather than later. So the key here at Ceres is that disruptive change is good and can be good, uh, and that we have got to, without any question, we've got to pick up the pace and we've got to increase the scale. If five years ago we were happy with companies saying uh, they want to reduce their carbon emissions by 10%, this year we're looking at 40%. If five years ago we were happy when companies said they'll invest in 10% of their energy from renewables, this year we're talking about 100% powered by renewables for the companies we work with. And we've got to be thinking about that order of magnitude. So how do the investors think about this now because they don't turn on a dime. They, they, these are big multi-billion dollar entities that make bets over medium to long term, a little bit short term sometimes. What are you asking them to do differently and, and how are they responding? Well, the investors like the companies, you're right, don't turn on a dime. They're large enterprises, but they too are looking at companies. And if companies are not integrating sustainability, they're questioning whether they have the right management team. We've got meetings going on here, side meetings between CFO of companies, CFOs who are running sustainability now as part of their job, not just running numbers. Uh, and they're meeting with investors. And the investors are saying, we think a well-managed company is a company that's integrating sustainability from the boardroom through their enterprise risk and strategic plan down to the supply chain. So we're bringing more and more of the financial players into the discussion. Uh, and the investors are making it clear that sustainability is a financial and material risk and that companies need to not only integrate it, but to act on it. So what are the kinds of risk? Is it reputational? Is it revenue? Is it right to operate? What, what are they looking at? What are they most concerned about? Well, the reason that investors and many of the board members of the largest companies, and we have a large program uh, at this conference talking about why sustainability belongs at the board level with board members and not just with CEOs or managers, is because sustainability does create risks for the enterprise. If you're a food company, if you're a apparel company and everything's based on water, if you're not looking at how to impact the fact that we are being told that we will have a water shortage by 2030 and realizing that that impacts your business in a major way, then perhaps you're not managing in a comprehensive, thoughtful way. So the discussions are about resource depletion, but they're also about bottom line profits. We have 75 large institutional investors uh, who have called on 45 of the largest fossil fuel companies to analyze their risk 
their stranded assets, what it means if they look at the Paris deal, which says we've got to be at a two-degree world, what does that mean to the future of an oil company one year from now, five years from now, and 10 years from now? And it's the largest institutional investors who own these companies who are saying analyze the risk to a, do a two-degree stress test. What do the financials of this company look like if we're going to a two-degree world? That's pretty important for investors to know. So as part of the what needs to be done is having investors look in different time horizons than they typically had operated? Well, looking at different time horizons, number one, which is very important, but just looking at the risks in a different way. If you are a coal company, many of whom have seen hits to their bottom line unlike they've ever seen, and a few who've gone out of business. If that is a possibility for some of the other fossil fuel companies, investors want to know that, and they want to know that sooner rather than later. And we are in a different world. 175 world leaders say we've got to be at a fossil fuel-free world. What does that mean for fossil fuel companies? And for investors who are heavily invested in those com companies, they ought to, and they are asking the questions, Let's do a two-degree stress test. What does the company look like under that scenario, short, medium, and long-term? Those are the questions you got to ask if you own the company. So there's, I don't know, $25 trillion or something in unburnable carbon. Um, is that something that, uh, is there a path through that? Do we not burn it at all, or do we uh, you, you know, take it out of the ground but use it for, for uh, materials, for example, and some other higher value things? What, what's the thinking on how you deal with those particular stranded assets? Sure. So let's start with the following. $680 billion or so every year are invested in new fossil fuels, new capital expenditure. So I'm not sure I have the perfect answer for what to do with the fossil fuels that are already in the ground that we don't want to burn. I am certain, although let's come back to that, I am certain we don't want to see $685 billion this year or next year going into new fossil fuels. And the very interesting thing, and many of our investor partners and members I think have been part of this discussion, is we are seeing less money going into new fossil fuels. Tar sands, where we saw hundreds of well, hundreds of millions and billions and billions of dollars going into mining for more tar sands, a lot of that money has been pulled out. It's been pulled out because it's too expensive to mine that fuel. It's too dirty. There's no way to control the carbon emissions. And in fact, we don't know that there's going to be a demand for it as we go to a renewable future. Um, but there are still enormous amounts of new capital, capital that should be moving towards renewables, moving towards efficiency, that are going into new fossil fuels. When you already have far more fossil fuels than you could ever burn. I mean, it is the defi definition of insanity to think, okay, let's go spend $100 billion more or $400 billion more. So some progress, less money going into new fossil fuels, tar sands slow down, incredibly so, uh, drilling in the Arctic changing, partially due to change in regulations, but partially you can't, it's, it's too expensive. You can't do it, and all of that money being pulled back. Let's hope that money is going into something that's more sustainable. So finally, when you and I sit down in a year at Series 2017, how do you think the conversation or the progress will have changed? What are you hoping to see? Well, for us, I'm hoping to see those more audacious goals from many of the companies we work with, so not a 10% commitment to renewables, but 100% or 50%. Different companies are going to move at different paces. Uh, a quicker change 
in moving uh, energy policy, transportation policy, human rights policies, uh, and resource depletion policies. It's one thing. We want to see more investors engaging with their companies, making it clear that this is something they value, and that's how they determine whether a company is doing a good job managing their institution. We also want to see the voices of the companies and investors we work, on, work with standing up on public policy. In the end, despite the fact that we've got a, a wonderful group of partners and companies that we work with, and you work with, Joel, terrific companies, there are tens of thousands of other companies who are not engaged in sustainability. We don't have the time to talk to every one of them one by one. You can knock on a lot of doors. I can knock on a lot of doors. We're not going to get there. Until we have policy change that says we need a price on carbon, until we get the Clean Power Plan passed in the United States, we can't meet the goals of Paris. And if the United States doesn't, other countries won't. So I want to stand here next year not only looking at the more audacious goals of companies and investors and what they're doing, but to know that we're making progress on the policy front. It doesn't mean in the middle of a crazy political year it's all going to happen. But we've got to see progress. We've got to see more of the capital market leaders standing up and saying we need policy if we're going to build a sustainable economy as well as a sustainable future for our kids. Well, I'll look forward to that conversation next year. Uh, Mindy Luber, president of Ceres, thanks so much. Great, Joel. So good to be working with you. Thanks. So, Lauren, you've been on the transportation beat. As you said, you're at Tesla. And you also wrote another piece at a, from another event uh, titled Hyperloop to High-Speed Rail, Who Will Build the Future of Mobility? Really great piece looking at where some big think technologies are going. Maybe you can start off by telling us, explaining what is Hyperloop? Yeah, so the Hyperloop, you've probably heard about it, also stems from sort of an Elon Musk idea that he put out into the tech ether a couple years back now. There are actually a couple of companies now pursuing this vision of an ultra high speed uh, system where you have basically tubes that are on stilts set up over an area and they shoot people in pods to their destinations. So it sounds like kind of completely insane. But um, there is actually an argument to be made that especially as we're thinking about really, really capital intensive transportation infrastructure improvements, like in California, there's been this proposal for a $64 billion high speed rail system on the table for many years now. Um, there is a case to be made, especially among sort of the techno optimist crowd, that we can do something that's better, faster, more cost effective. Uh, uh, so Afshin Pishvar, who's actually the chief legal officer for Hyperloop Technologies, one of these Hyperloop companies out in Silicon Valley, explained a little bit what the model is here and also what some of their challenges are around finding people who can actually build these emerging technologies. Hyperloop 
is the, um, as Elon Musk uh, put it, the fifth mode of transportation. We have ships, uh, trains, cars, airplanes, and then Hyperloop would be the fifth mode. It's a brand new mode of transportation. It's ultra-high speed, uh, tube-based transportation system. It's in a tube. It's a contained environment, so weather is not a factor. We remove most of the pressure, not completely. It's not a complete vacuum, but uh, close to it, so that there's no air resistance. The pods that travel within it are kind of, you can think of it as like airplanes without wings, and we levitate. So there's no air resistance, and there's no friction because we levitate using uh, passive maglev, very similar to um, some trains. Um, And what that does is allows the system to be energy elegant. It's not just efficient. It's energy elegant. Um, It's cheaper to build and cheaper to operate. When there's no air resistance and friction, you have you only need to provide propulsion for 5 to 10% of the way. So it's 95 to um, 90% energy-free transportation. And there's no direct um, carbon emissions because it's electric-based. So it's ecological as well. So it's greener, smart, smarter, and faster. We uh, think of it as kind of like fiber optics for uh, people and cargo rather than than fiber optics for bits of data. This is fiber optics for atoms. Because we packetize by using pods, um, things that are going to a specific location don't have to stop uh, at every uh, station, for example. Uh, And what that also does, so that becomes a lot more efficient and fast. What that also does is the infrastructure, because the pods are lighter, you don't have this massive object going over uh, the infrastructure. So so the infrastructure is much lighter. When we're on pylons, uh, for example, environmentally, we touch the ground very little. Animals can go underneath, uh, so on and so forth. So uh, um, Hyperloop uh, is not here just to move the world, but to transform it. The greatest challenge is that our workforce is not a rolling stock. This is a brand new uh, technology. So when our welders and marine engineers and aerospace engineers and uh, fabricators work together to develop something, uh, the tools they need to invent the inventions don't exist. So they have to first invent the tool uh, and then invent the invention. So it's finding very creative, um, highly talented um, people from um, the top to the bottom, um, and um, folks that can collaborate very well. And the millennials are extremely good at at this. Um, So they're um, the ones coming into the workforce to replace the retiring folks, and I think they're uh, very well suited for it. It's an opportunity to provide training and education um, to, to meet those skills that are required. So tubes, stilts, shooting people at high speed for long distances. I mean, it sounds crazy, and I, and I venture to say that if those other two words, Elon Musk, weren't involved here, it would just seem, as you said, sort of you know, crazy talk. But it, it sounds like this, some of these people really think this is not 
it all far-fetched. I mean, they're raising a lot of money. They've got uh, sort of tens of millions of dollars in the bank now from investors. So it's certainly not a completely pie-in-the-sky idea. And I do think one of the really interesting areas is when you think about moving cargo in that kind of system. Uh, I don't, it seems like there would be a little bit of a barrier to getting consumers to just jump into a, a pod and be sort of shot to L.A. from San Francisco or whatever. Um, but I, I will say it was... It's not that different from getting in an airplane these days anyway. It's kind of a shooting t- tube or pod. But yeah, I get yeah. your point. Your point's well taken. Uh huh. Um, but I think uh, they're, I mean, they're at this point, they're just really not publicly at least speaking about the details of this. How do you deal with issues like eminent domain that have been holding up uh, the high speed rail project? Uh, it's still an interesting concept, but how this gets done on a, a policy front, especially in high regulation areas like California, is not like. Not yet clear. However, in areas where there isn't that sort of strict oversight, uh, it is interesting. And Nevada Hyperloop is already building a sort of proof of concept models. And I've also heard some talk about Eastern Europe areas where there's more space and governments who are more willing to sort of try ideas that might seem a little crazier. I think there is where you might see some of this earlier on. So it's not just Hyperloop, it's also high-speed rail. What's going on there? Yeah, so very interesting. We've, as I mentioned, it's been the better part of a decade now, at least, that there's been this conversation around the California High-Speed Rail Authority, but they are actually underway now on construction of the first 100-plus mile stretch of rail in California's agriculture-rich Central Valley, which is an area of much higher concentrated poverty than the coastal cities you hear a lot about, like LA and San Francisco. Um, So there's a lot of talk about sort of building out systems there and connecting this vision for a next generation of transportation that is all electric, by the way. So drastically would cut down on the carbon footprint of like short haul flights between California and LA, uh, but then linking that with economic development for areas like the Central Valley. Um, So like I said, right now they're underway on this 100 plus mile stretch, but they are already looking at some pretty daunting challenges there as well, um, where Hyperloop is having the issue of attracting the millennial creative tech talent to help them with their vision. The folks on the municipal side are dealing with sort of this looming silver tsunami of union labor. Um, So they talked a lot about how there are hundreds of folks literally in agencies both working with the high-speed rail authority and the folks who deal with um, the the local agencies who run the, the train systems in the Bay Area, for example, that could walk out the door tomorrow if they wanted to retire. And they said, we don't really have people there to replace them. One of the people who spoke really eloquently about the very practical challenges here was Ed Riskin, who is the director of transportation for the San Francisco Municipal Transportation Agency. So here in San Francisco, not only do we have this uh, convoluted transportation system, we have some 150-year-old technology that we're not modernizing, our cable cars that that we love. We have historic streetcars and then, of course, uh, more modern systems. Um, But this is all uh, sitting within a context of a city and a region that's booming, uh, that is seeing unprecedented growth. We're six or seven years into recovery from a recession, which is uh, about the longest that we've had in the last 100 years or so. 
there's a, anyone who's been in and around San Francisco in the last few years, you can see there's a lot of people who are coming here to work. There's a lot of people coming here to live. Uh, we have a lot of things happening in the city that other cities w- would probably be happy to have happening there. Um, so th- there's a lot of good things. The unemployment rate five or six years ago was up close to 10%. Now it's down in the low threes. Uh, so there's a lot of good things happening in the city, but it it's creating stresses and strains. And, and while we economically are probably in a very different situation than Fresno is, some of the things that President Bain spoke about in terms of workforce are some of the same things that, that we're feeling here. And really, it comes from two different forces uh, that are coming together as a result of the booming economy. One is that it's creating the need for us to build the transportation and other infrastructure to support all of this growth. And fortunately, with with high-speed rail, with Caltrain electrification, with the projects that we're doing here in the city, the construction of the Transbay Transit Center, we have billions of dollars in investment happening in the city um, and even more so in the region. BART is bringing a $3.5 billion general obligation bond to the ballot this fall. Uh, So there's significant demand uh, to refresh the existing and old infrastructure as well as build new infrastructure to accommodate all that growth. But at the same time, all of that growth is creating affordability issues that are pushing some of the folks needed to build and operate that transportation system further and further out. Uh, So those two forces coming together are part of the challenge that we're facing here. Uh, We have a lot of people in our existing workforce uh, both within my agency, the, the, the skilled trades within the agency, as well as in the construction sector in general here in the Bay Area that are getting ready to retire. Uh, people have referred to it as the silver tsunami. We've got a whole bunch of folks uh, ready, to, uh, ready to wash out of the, of the workforce, um, but what we don't have is the pipeline behind them. We uh, not only have a shortage of folks coming in, but a lot more complexity in the nature of the work that we're asking people to do. When you're going out to work on a cable car or a 1970s transit vehicle, you bring a wrench. But when, if you're coming to work on a modern transit vehicle, let alone the, the Hyperloop, you're, you're bringing a laptop. And so it's really different sets of skills and much more integrated sets of skills. It's not you have your electrical folks over here and your mechanical folks over here. Everything is electromechanical. Things are systems are integrated together. They're much more sophisticated. Uh, we don't necessarily have, nor have we been building the skills that we need in order to maintain those systems. Uh, even construction techniques are getting much more sophisticated. Um, the the Transbay Transit Center will be a, a lead gold or platinum building. There's a lot of complex systems in there. Uh, that some of the traditional trades have, haven't um, haven't been as good at addressing, and so adding, you know, overlaying those things with higher costs of living, with lower historical investments in in those pathways that Tim was talking about, and we have it, we have some issues here. Just just within my agency, to give you some examples, uh, in classifications like carpenters, painters, plumbers, maintenance machinists. Half of the people are retirement age, retirement eligible. They have the age and the years where they could walk out the door at any minute, half of them. 
Um, if, if we look across the skilled trades in the agency, it's well over 100 folks could walk out the door tomorrow. They've got the years and the age, and we don't have folks necessarily behind them. So trains, planes, hyperloops, uh, personal cars, there's so much going on in the transportation space, and we've got a couple of interesting events I know I'll be heading to this month, so stay tuned for much more on this front. Let's shift gears to the week ahead. Joining me now is GreenBiz.com Managing Editor, Elsa Wenzel. How's it going, Elsa? Hi, pretty good. How about you? Good, good. So what have we got coming up? So you are covering the latest work to clean up the climate impacts of big trucking fleets, starting with BSR's Future of Fuels effort, which is launching a fuel tool to help companies do just that. And speaking of BSR, Cecil Wagi is BSR's Director of Biodiversity and Ecosystem Services and also a frequent Green Biz contributor. She's sharing a piece about the business rationale for investing in nature. And how Berkeley can a company be? Well, Cliff Bar is right next door to Berkeley in Emeryville, California. And Lauren, I know you got an inside look at all the people-friendly perks they have. But beyond that, Cliff Bar is doing some really interesting work on building the organic supply chain. So watch for that. Also, um, John Elkington, renowned author and founding partner of Volans, will write about how climate change is turning up the heat on the world's middle class. Lots of good stuff coming up. Thanks, Elsa. We've also got a couple of events in the wings. Uh, June 21st through 23rd, we'll be in Honolulu for Verge Hawaii, the Asia-Pacific Clean Energy Summit. Then in September, from September 19th through 22nd, Verge, our look at the convergence of sustainability and technology, will be back in Silicon Valley in Santa Clara. You can get more info about both of those by going to greenbiz.com and clicking on the events tab at the top of the page. Thanks so much, Elsa. Oh, one more thing. I almost forgot to mention that we are working with the Yale Center for Business and the Environment and the Conservation Finance Network. You'll see some of their stories on our site, but um, senior writer Barbara Grady is co-hosting a Twitter chat with them next week, May 12th at high noon um, Pacific. That's 3 p.m. Eastern. And you can find it by looking for the hashtag EcoFinanceChat. That's E-C-O finance chat, all is one word. They'll be talking about conservation finance. Can it reach the mainstream investment market? What are banks, companies, and nonprofits doing to advance conservation finance? So bring your questions and start typing May 12th at noon Pacific. Very cool. All right. Thanks so much, Elsa. Thanks. Thanks, guys. And that's our 350 podcast for this week. You'll always find the links to the organization, stories, and events that we mentioned in this episode. Just go to greenbiz.com slash 350. Thanks again to our podcast director, Soraya Melkonian. You can subscribe to Greenbiz 350 via iTunes and lots of other places and find it every Friday morning on greenbiz.com or through our daily email newsletter, GreenBuzz. Go sign up for that on the site. Um, but whatever means necessary, join us again next week for another edition of Green Biz 350. Send us your feedback, your ideas, your comments, your complaints, your wish list, whatever we want to tell us at 350 at greenbiz.com. For all of us here at Green Biz Group, I'm Joel McCower. Thanks so much for listening. Until next time, have a great day. <laughs>